Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. On today's show, we've got Dr. Sheldon L. Eakins. He's the founder of the Leading Equity Center, the host of a podcast by the same name and author of the book, Leading Equity, Becoming an Advocate for All Students. So Dr. Eakins, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your organization? Sure, it's it's actually Eakins. Oh, Eakins, Um, sorry. Yeah, it looks like Eakins. I get that all the time, but it's actually Eakins. Um, I am originally from Houston, Texas, uh, and I don't know, somehow I ended up in Idaho. That's a long story. It never was in my my vision to end up in the Northwest uh, area. However, I have been living in the state of Idaho for, see, coming up on seven years now. Initially, I I moved here because uh, I was looking for a job after I finished my PhD, and I got a job at Idaho State and started working there. Um, but before that, I was a school school uh, teacher. So I primarily did history, social studies in middle and high schools. Uh, and then I spent a few years as a school principal. And then um, I guess most recently, uh, my, my final posting, if you will, was working in Ford Hall uh, as their director of special education for a few years uh, as well. So currently I, I am a podcaster. I run the Leading Equity Center. So I do a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion work uh, when it comes to teacher training, principal trainer, leadership, counseling, uh, those type of areas uh, where we focus on ensuring that all students get their individual needs met when it comes to curriculum and instruction and also their social needs. Thanks for that background info. I appreciate you coming on the show. And one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about was closing achievement gaps. I know that that's not something that can be solved with a snap of a finger. In many cases, they may be symptomatic of deep systemic issues within American society. So it can feel impossible to fix like a David versus Goliath scenario. So if teachers are the David, what can that everyday teacher do to close that gap? What are some meaningful, concrete, specific ideas you have? You know, when thank you for asking that question. I, I like to... That's that's a very, like you said, it, it can't be solved overnight. There's definitely some things that are put in place since the beginning. I, I would go back to after the Industrial Revolution and how our school systems were, were set up, which often were set up to track certain groups of people to maybe either help them get into, you know, higher education maybe or certain trades. Uh, but that structure that was implemented back in those times is still prevalent today. It's funny because I was thinking that when COVID started, you know, a couple of years ago, pandemic hits, and this was an opportunity for us to kind of reevaluate our school system and, and our approaches to education, which I think a lot of folks were focusing a lot on what do we do with remote, hybrid, you know, what is our situation? How do we keep six feet, you know, distance? So there was a lot of safety and health concerns. And so I think that slowly but surely, we've kind of started to go right back into our traditional forms of education when it comes to schooling. When we talk about the achievement gap, I think we should also have a conversation about the opportunity gap. See, sometimes when we think about the achievement gap, we talk about you know how certain groups of students are not necessarily uh, receiving the same test scores or results as their counterparts. Uh, typically, we have those conversations dealing with racial, uh, w- racial, racial challenges. I guess, if you will, we would do a lot of comparison 
but we don't also have the conversation about, okay, in certain schools, such as this, if I'm going to say urban schools or suburban schools, which schools are more likely to have highly qualified teachers, which schools are more likely to have the technology, the resources, the books, the, the everything that really is required in order to achieve those uh, you know, high scores or at least meet those standards. And that is very disproportionate. So when we look at just a small part of the story where we say, oh, well, we looked at the test results and we see that this group of, of students, uh, they're, they're here. And then this group of students are there, but then again, we don't have the full conversation. Yeah, but that's, that, that school was a Title I school or it didn't have the highly qualified teachers. It didn't have teachers who really believed and were willing to challenge students who had an asset mindset, not thinking that, oh, these kids are two, three, four grades behind in their reading or, or in math skills. And so this is, you know, there's, it's just too challenging for them. And this is all that they can do. So when we have that conversation, I really want us to also talk about, okay, but the resources aren't always equal either. So you just use the phrase having an asset mindset. Can you talk more about that and what that means? Yeah, here's the thing. I'll, I'll give you a good example because I, I see this a lot, especially out in, in Idaho. We have a lot of students that maybe their families, families are, are migrant workers. And so maybe English is not their first language. And so in this area, you could speak three, four, five different languages at home but if English is not your first language, if you have an accent and, and sometimes you're, you're looked at as less intelligent or you're looked at as behind. Right. So some we, we talk about learning loss and we talk about these type of things. And so we expect our students when they come into fourth grade, they're supposed to be here, here and here. And if they aren't there, then that is, and we're, then we're sitting and thinking, okay, well, how do we get them caught up when they're behind and they're behind? That is a deficit mindset. Instead, I always argue, well, let's see where they are right now. Okay, so maybe they're not reading at a fourth grade level and they're in the fourth grade, but they're reading at a first grade level. So they can read and there's some areas that definitely they need some growth. However, we can take them where they are, look at those as assets, and then build from there as opposed to always thinking, oh, they're behind, they're behind, oh, they, they missed school and so now they're behind. That's a deficit mindset. So that's that's what I'm saying is look at the skills. So if a student can speak two languages or they're learning English at the time, that's an asset. I, I only speak one language, right? I speak English. But because English is my first language, I'm often looked at a certain way. But because students' language may not be the first one, may not be English, then they're often viewed as less intelligent and maybe not even as challenged as they could be if they had their teachers or instructors had a asset-based approach to their learning. Mm -hmm. So teachers need to make sure that they're looking at diverse students and seeing the strengths they bring to the community. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. So you also talked a little bit about the pandemic. You said you know, this was an opportunity for us to kind of re-envision things. And mm -hmm. instead, you're kind of disappointed that schools just went right back to where they were. So what could have been done with the pandemic and the response to it? Initially, when I was, I mean, first of all, I would start with the grading system. I mean, even when pandemic was hitting, uh, we had a lot of schools that, you know, parents were upset uh, because, you know, they, they were concerned that, you know, how is my child going to get into college when we don't have any scores or we don't have any grades for them? 
And, and the challenge that I had with that is you have families that could hire a tutor or that, you know, there was a lot of learning pods happening where, you know, small groups of families would kind of come together and have someone that kind of helps facilitate the school learning. Because a lot of us were teaching, you know, as parents, we were all forced to, to have to teach our kids at home. And so, but that is an advantage to certain groups of people and it's a disadvantage to other groups of people. We Not everyone had the option to get a tutor to help them out at home or their parents were educators and so they could help them at home. Like not everybody had those opportunities. So when we think about grading, for example, that was my first thought. Okay, let's revisit how we grade. Um, does, I, I see teachers, when, when a, a student turns in something late, they get docked 10%. Or they get, you know, 5%, so the highest that they can get is a 90 or 95, something like that. But does that accurately reflect what a student's ability or what they have learned? No, it's, we're grading behavior in that sense. But I see those kind of things happen. Student walks in late, oh, we'll, we'll mark you down on your paper. But that's, again, that is behavior, not necessarily what they are accurately, uh, you know, what their skill set is at. So I, I think that that's the first thing is just kind of revisit how we do grading. I see a lot of schools a lot of classrooms have started to move into gradeless classrooms uh, and, and doing other avenues when it comes to their learning structure. Uh, another area that I would look at is, in addition to that, is just kind of how the assessments are done. We tend to teach the way we were taught or how we learn. And so sometimes we require students, okay, give us a 10 page paper um, or give me, um, you know, assignment in this capacity. Uh, however, when we do it that way, we don't always meet all of our students' needs. So some students might have an IEP or some students might have some, I don't know, 504 plan or something like that, or just their learning style is a little bit different. So doing a 10-page paper or having access to internet and, and, and also being able to do that research may not be available for them. So is there an alternative way that they can show you that they have mastered or they have learned the skills or whatever it is that you're you're assessing? Uh, can they do that maybe in oral form? Can they do that maybe in a, a, a picture or some sort of a, a visual concept because they're very artistic and maybe writing is not their strong suit. So if we could provide options for the way that those assessments can come in, I think that's another area that we can look at as opposed to the traditional forms of assessment, quizzes, tests, multiple choice, those type of things. Can we really expand upon that? Um, and then the final piece that I would probably say when it comes to maybe revisiting how we do our our school in these days is, is just doing a little bit more co-teaching or, or project-based learning. We live in a society where our students nowadays, they are more than likely going to end up in a position as far as jobs go where they're going to work in a team. You know, we don't always work as isolated but we do that a lot in school, right? So our students don't always get to learn the cooperative skills, the interpersonal intrapersonal skills that they need to develop when they want to be sustainable as adults, right? So more project-based uh, concepts, I think, would be very beneficial in these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are some really interesting ideas. And I think you have a good point that we tend to get in kind of like, you know, a rut or a track of how we do things mm -hmm. and we forget to question it or to think just because this has been done forever, is it the absolute best way? And if not all students are being reached, it seems like, yeah, why not experiment a little bit and see you know, if this benefits multiple groups. To play the devil's advocate a little bit, 
if there were like a gradeless form in a classroom, I think some teachers would worry like how do you motivate the students to do that if it's not for a grade? If they're like, oh well, I could not do that and it wouldn't affect me. So what would you say to that? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. I remember having a conversation with a parent a couple years ago and they were complaining about their school because they said, well, the school doesn't give homework. And I said, okay, well, tell me more. What's, what's your concern about that? Was, well, you know, I, I think that they should get homework. I said, well, what's the purpose of homework? Well, I don't know. It just, I always had homework when I was a student. And <laughs> so the conversation didn't really go further beyond that. I was like, yeah, we were raised, we went to school thinking that we needed homework. That's what we were norm, you know, that's the norm. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to have homework, right? A student is in school all day long. Let's call it eight to three, right? Then they have to go home and then they're in school again at home. When do the when do the kids get a break? Right? Whether if it's a, a two-page worksheet or an assignment or a report, whatever it is, why why do they have to continue to do school all literally all day long? And so they only get maybe a couple of hours of family time, a couple of hours of you know extracurricular activities, just being to themselves, reading, whatever it is but they're spending all their time doing homework. I think the mindset, and again, going back to the traditional approaches to education, we expect homework, we expect uh, grades, we expect all of these things, but it's 2022. Why can't we revisit these conversations? Are they still relevant to this day? Going all the way back to industrial revolution where a lot of our initial school, like what we have right now, the foundation of education comes from those times, but can we re really uh, revisit? Now there's, there's colleges that and institutions that don't necessarily require GPAs and things like that to get in. Um, there are, I, I know some, some good colleagues of mine that do grade lists and the way that they do it so that there still is a GPA, right? Because again, we, think, oh, I got to have a GPA, I got to have A's and B's, where the student can basically say, they can kind of determine what their grade would be, right? And so that is a consultation, one-on-one -on -one consultation between a teacher and a student, and often sometimes with the parents as well, to say, okay, this is the work that I've done, and here's my portfolio, all the work that I've completed during this semester, this, this quarter. Uh, I believe that I deserve a, B, or an A if we're going to attach a letter score to this, and here's why. And so that consultation happens. So even though there's not a typical, you turn in this assignment, I gave you 100 for this, and vice, vice versa, but it's more of the culminating approach of how much work I've done, how much, uh, you know, what's, what are the projects, what are the things that I've done as far as a portfolio go, and then we can kind of decide as a team what that grade would look like. So that way, when we want to transition to our next, you know, to higher education or other areas that do require a GPA, some sort of letter scores, that is available for them as well. Mm -hmm. So giving some more power to the students, involving them in their learning and their learning outcomes a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Something else you talked about was this idea of unequal schools. And that does happen. And a lot of times the schools in more wealthy areas, they have more taxes to work with, they have better facilities, they might have higher salaries and therefore attract stronger teachers. So what can we do about that? How can we make schools more equal? Yeah, you know, and, and that's the piece that we have to we have to have that conversation. So that conversation is not always happening. 
I I am a person who believes that the system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Uh, it, it was designed a certain way, and it's and it's fulfilling that right. And so we don't always want to have these kind of conversations because the reason why a lot of those conversations, when you talk about like wealthier schools or you know more tax brackets, those kind of things, it does come down to race. And having conversations about race is a very uh, I don't want to call it taboo, but it's it's there's a lot of fragility maybe that I should say when it comes to having these kind of conversations. But that those kind of conversations need to happen in order to really discuss the opportunity gaps that are out there. We, I mean, even though Brown versus Board happened what a little bit over sixty years ago with separate separate segregated schools, our schools are still segregated. I mean, because a lot of the neighborhoods that we live in are segregated. And so, and, and that was intentional with redlining and, and some other areas, right? We can get into that, but we got to have the conversation that the reason why a lot of our schools are unequal when it comes to uh, resources allocation, high, uh, you know, recruitment and all these different things does have racial emphasis behind all of that stuff. But again, a lot of folks don't want to have that kind of conversation or they don't want to admit or accept that's the thing, or they're willing to just keep things as is because it's going to help their families or help out their neighbors' families, things like that. So they want to just keep the status quo, but we got to be willing to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes along with what you've talked about, about being an advocate for all students. Mm -hmm. So how can, how can districts and teachers better do that for their kids? Recognizing it uh, and calling it out and naming it. Um, and, and it's hard, especially in, in our political climate, um, because sometimes we're so stuck on semantics. So do you say certain words, that's a trigger point for some people, especially for those who might have be in position of power, legislation, uh, school leadership, those type of areas, it might be a trigger. And so as a result, they don't get discussed or we're trying to figure out, okay, well, you don't like this word, but I can use this word. Literally means the same thing, but because it's a different word that doesn't necessarily trigger, then we can have a conversation. Uh, I, I so, so we have to name it. We have to be willing to have the conversation. And, and I don't think a lot of folks are ready for that. Um, it could be a level of comfort. It could be a level of confidence. You know, unfortunately, some individuals who have tried to be advocates have maybe they didn't know the best approach, and so it just didn't go well. And they got accused of being something or indoctrinating or whatever it is. And so it's like, you know what? I'll never say anything again. And so what happens when you say, you know, I tried, but honestly, it doesn't really impact me. I was just trying to advocate for other people. It's not really my issue, uh, but I tried to do something in the past, didn't work out. And so I'll just leave it alone. But the more and more those type of things happen, especially with individuals who are people of influence, who do have some sway, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't move things forward. Um, the other thing is at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind, we're talking about years and years, generations and generations of systems that were set up, we're just gonna assume unintentionally, we're just, we'll just say the best, the best intentions, right? but systems that were set up that uh, have impeded a lot of folks progress and so as a result, we're not necessarily thinking about the importance of let's revisit these concepts. Let's revisit these rules and these policies, these systems. 
Can, can we have a conversation about that? Can we make sure that we bring some other people who have not been represented in a lot of these conversations and these, these forums, these groups, can we make sure that they have a voice as well? But again, it does require some folks have to, to recognize that these things need to happen. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, there are schools and districts that have a lot more diversity than some other schools. Mm-hmm. So in those schools or districts with little diversity, they might be tempted to think, well, we only have like two or three diverse kids in the whole school, so we don't really need to worry about equity or diversity work. What would you say to those people? I, I would like to hear their definition of diversity because sometimes when we hear diversity, we limit it to race. But you going to always have socioeconomic status as an issue in any school. Uh, you're going to have the kids that are in the trailer park. You're going to have the kids that live in a more affluent neighborhood. You're going to have folks who have the latest and greatest phones. You're going to have the folks that have the latest shoes, purses, whatever it is, materialistic things. All of those are part of equitable, equitable challenge. You, you're going to have kids with IEPs at your school. Whether, but when we just say, oh, we only have two black kids, or we only have two Latinx kids, or we only have two Native American kids, when you limit it to just race and then assume that everything else is on par, oh, we're good because we don't have diverse students, but what does diverse mean to you? Because that can include gender. That can, like, there's a lot of language, right? We talked about language. So there's a lot that comes with diversity. I've had a lot of individuals uh, that will say, well, I don't have any culture. I don't have this or that because I'm white. No, I'm like, no, you do have culture. You do have, uh, you know, there's different things that make you, you. You're still a unique person. So no matter, at the end of the day, if we focus just on race, then we're going to have issues. You have to re- realize that every school has, every school, I don't care what school it is, always has areas for growth when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not all kids operate the exact same way. They're, they're going to be at different levels. They're going. Some kids are going to finish work faster than others. Some are going to need extra time. But we have to consider all of the factors, not just the skin color, we also have to consider all of the other factors that makes a student, a human being student, uh, unique in their ways. Now, once we have that conversation, then I would say, okay, now let's do an actual audit. Because I, I, I have audits available. So I will enter into a school and the school says the same thing. Oh, not our school. That's, that's nation. That stuff over in happens across the nation, but not our school. Our schools, we don't have these challenges. We don't have this here. I say, okay, well, let's take a look. And so we go through the audit and they can see as we go through different assessments and different areas from their mission statement to their hiring practices, to their feedback and communication with their families, to their uh, the professional development opportunities. We go through all of those different areas and then they can see, oh man, there's actually some areas where we could improve upon. How do we go about doing that? But you have to be open. Again, you have to be open to these conversations. If you shut everything down and say, this is not our school, this is not here because we're 99% uh, certain, you know, we're 99% folks of European descent, so it's not here, but you have to look further into, okay, how many of your folks are on free and reduced lunch? How many of your folks have IEPs? How many of your folks have uh, 504 plans? How many of your folks ha- do not have access to technology at home? There's a lot of conversation that we can have that goes way beyond just race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to look at 
students multiple identities you know Mm -hmm. so they might be economically disadvantaged and disabled or have disabilities so how might that impact the student something else you've talked about that's important is to have basically teacher bodies who represent their communities having diverse teachers and how that can be really meaningful for students so I know that teachers often aren't as diverse as their communities. So can you tell us about the barriers to that and how that can be overcome? Um, I would say, I mean, if we look at our, I want to say it's like 83% white is our teaching force nationally, but our student population is like 53% of color. There's a mismatch mismatch there. I, I, I worked at the university here at Idaho State. I taught a class called Change Strategies. And I had one black student, this is a doctoral program. And I had a black student tell me I was the first black professor they've ever had. So they've literally have gone through their entire K-12 plus their uh, bachelor's. Now they're in their graduate school and they have, this is the first time that they've had a teacher of color or a black teacher, right? There's a difference when I can identify, like when I can see myself as a student, I can see myself in a, a, a teacher. Because it's not just the content knowledge, but there's also the other things, right? Let's say it's a school principal is a person of color, and I, I'm a student, and I see that. Okay, leadership. I see this individual has a doctorate degree, or that they have graduate school, or they have a bachelor's degree. I see they're educated. I see them with a family. These are things that I can look up to, not just the academic side, but there's that social piece, that, that relationship building. This individual, this adult that's a staff member, They've had some similar experiences. They grew up in the same neighborhood that I grew up. They interact with the same folks. They they are concerned about the same social issues that I'm concerned about. Those little things matter. So when you ask me the question of well, what can we do, that doesn't, here, here's my thought. I'm not saying, right now our, our education system is where it is as far as the representation. But I think that even if you are a teacher who do that, who does not identify the same identities and backgrounds as your students, there are still ways that you can show that you care. There are still ways that you can have empathy. So even if these challenges, social issues and stuff that's happening in our country, they don't necessarily uh, uh, impact you on a personal level, you can stand in solidarity with them. I've had conversations with teachers who will tell me stuff like, oh, your people feel this certain way, or those people feel that way. Well, I would hope that you also feel the same, that you are also offended, that you are also concerned with, uh, you know, folks in, in at the borders being separated from their families and, and, and the mistreatment that's happening or the Dakota pipeline challenges where different things are impacting, again, not necessarily impacting you personally. However, you can see how it impacts some of your students and their families and I would hope that you would feel some sort of empathy as well. Those are the, the main things that I would say is, yeah, we definitely would love to have more teachers of color enter into our uh, teaching profession. But currently where we're at right now, there's things again that we can do to show our support, show empathy and be authentic with our approach. Me personally, I've learned a lot of things about my students that I just wouldn't have never necessarily learned about. 
because I identify differently with a lot of my students, but I've taken the time to ask them questions. I'm taking the time to do my own research and I've taken the time to really engage myself with the stuff that my students are interested in because that's all part of relationship building. You have a good relationship with your students, the students won't want to let you down. They, they'll want to do, they'll go above and beyond when they really look at you and see that, oh, that this, this teacher cares about me. So there's things that we can do. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, teachers or staff members of color are often expected to do the diversity, equity, and inclusion work and without pay. So how can schools and districts make sure they aren't putting all the diversity work on the shoulders of just a few? Mm. That's a, I mean, I, I see a lot of my, my, my educators that, let's say they speak multiple languages, going back to that conversation, and they're required to do the translations all the time. And the thing about it, you know, they're, they're in the middle of a class and, and then the, the principal, somebody comes up, okay, I'm going to watch your class for you. I need you to go talk to this parent. And they're like middle of the lesson. They got to stop what they're doing. They got to go down the hall, talk to a family because there's no one else that is designated for these positions. We often, as people of color, we often have to do our teaching job, right? Lesson plans, grading, all these things. And we have that in addition to being the, the local teacher that our students come to talk to. That's it's not, it's not a, an official advisory role or mentoring role, but if we don't do it, who will, right? So I have the pressure at like, when I worked at the university, we didn't have a black student at, uh, unit union, right? So I wanted a few black staff on campus and so I got a lot of staff, students of colors, black students coming to me, just office out and I'm in the middle of working, but they're coming to me to tell me about what they have going on. And I can't turn them away. I'm not gonna say, hey, listen, I'm busy right now. I can't, I can't talk to you right now, right? Because where else are they gonna go? And so I'm not being compensated for that. And I'm not complaining. I'm not saying, oh, you should pay me extra. But what I want is to be recognized. Listen, I'm doing a lot of things outside of my normal job because there's no one else to do it. And we, you know, I'm concerned about my students and I want the best for them. However, I'm being pulled in various situations, various directions. And please recognize that when it comes up for my performance evaluations, when it comes up for my, uh, you know, up for tenure, or when it comes up for this or these things, I have 20 other things that I'm doing in addition to the regular job that I was hired for. But my colleagues, all they have to do is worry about the regular job that they were hired for. They don't have to worry about translating. They don't have to worry about dealing with so, uh, certain issues like that because that's not a, a, they're part of the dominant culture and it's just not an issue. Um, even if I was part of the LGBTQ plus community, right? So the, all the students that might represent that same identity, if I'm a teacher and this is part of my identity, I got to teach and I'm working with my LGBTQ plus students because again, if I don't do it, who will? So it's not necessarily about a complaint. It's not necessarily, uh, I, I would love to see our, our teachers be compensated for those additional roles that they have, whether if it's an official role or not, um, but also just the recognition, especially when it comes to those assessments, evaluations and things like that. Yeah, what you what you said really resonates. I was just talking to a Hispanic teacher from an Idaho school district who was telling me that there's like five or six people on staff who speak Spanish, but he was the only one who had let it be known that he speaks Spanish. 
and the other teachers had hidden it because they didn't want to have the burden of translating all the time put on them. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I've heard from you that what teachers can do to advocate for their students is have an asset mindset, question traditional teaching practices, have empathy, do research, connect, build relationships with their students, anything else you want to highlight that teachers can do. Just understand that this is a journey. This is this is not going to happen overnight. You know, sometimes we want instant results. You know, we want to want to put in a microwave and, and get the instant, you know, okay, popcorn's ready. But you have to keep in mind, we're talking about years and years, generations and generations of systems that have been put in place. Uh, it, it's not going to happen overnight. So just kind of stick with it. I always recommend folks to, you know, make some short-term, medium, and long-term goals. Uh, what are some strategies that you can do today? What are some things that might take a few months? And what are some things that might take a year and multiple years? To change, but stick at it um, and and try to get as much buy-in as you can and support as you can. Sometimes when it feels like we're just us doing the work, you're the only person that's you know aware of these things or, or trying to make some changes. Um, it, it can wear you out again because you're trying to do these things in addition to your actual job responsibilities. So it can wear you out. So make sure that you take care of yourself. Your mental health is very important. I, I've gotten stressed out before because I wanted to support my kids, my students, and it just wasn't, it just felt like I was hitting walls. But I was dealing with that. And again, dealing with my teaching roles. So just, just stay at it. Keep your mental health uh, at the forefront. Because if, you know, we need you. We need you out there. Those things are very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that resilience piece too, like if the teacher makes a mistake or does something wrong, don't just say, well, I'm not trying that again, but to yeah. just keep making that effort and keep learn on. from mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. You got to keep that. It's, it's, again, it's not going to just change overnight. And you know what? At the end of the day, not everybody's going to be on board. Uh, sometimes people will tell me, I needed 100, I, I want all my staff to be, have buy in, but it's change and, and there's no like any kind of change to me. You're not going to get 100% of your your folks to buy into something. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be willing to take that charge, take the lead and, and be willing to understand. And eventually folks will get on board. And, and you know what? There might be a couple that may not ever get on board, but at least you have the majority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, listeners, if you want more information, you can go to the Leading Equity Center website, which has links to the podcast. And you can check out Dr. Aiken's book, which is available on Amazon, I think, right? Mm -hmm. yep. That's called, again, Leading Equity, Becoming an Advocate for All Students. So, Dr. Aikens, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate all your wisdom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. And don't forget to go to idahoednews.org for all the latest. Have a great week.